Such a Lovely Little War. Such a Lovely Little War covers two years, two very eventful years. I spent in Saigon as a child from uh, July 1961 to July 1963. And then in 63, my father, who was a civil servant uh, and also a diplomat for the Republic of Vietnam, capital Saigon, also called South Vietnam in those days, um, he was posted to London in 63, so we ended up in London and a short time, about a year and a half after we had arrived, my father decided to resign and started a new life. He became a journalist at Reuters, uh, at Fleet Street, Reuters, mm -hmm. the press agency. And so my parents stayed on for 20 years in England and I, spelled, I, spent, I spent nine full years in London 
going to the French Lycée, but becoming fluent in English and enjoying another revolution, the, the pop counterculture revolution mm -hmm. in London of the 60s and 70s, a very um, eventful That's an uh, amazing period. place to come of age. It is. It was quite exciting. The Very exciting. This is in 64, 65, the Beatles and the Stones and God knows how many other bands were becoming big. And we'd watch Top of the Pops on TV every Thursday, I think. And we'd listen to Radio One, which was born in 1967. And we tried to get to hear Radio Caroline, which was broadcasting from a ship somewhere oh, the in the British Channels. The, yeah. the pirate radio, yeah. And we'd, we'd swap albums constantly with our friends at school. Music was central, pop music was central to our, our lives. There wasn't much comic art in England at that time, mm -hmm. but there was. I would um, read uh, weeklies like The Beano or a trasher uh, magazine called Smash, which was quite good. Uh, and there was also there were also many war comics, which I would be an avid reader of. Uh, I'd pick one up in the morning at Wimbledon Station. We lived in Wimbledon, in the southwestern suburb of London, and I had about 40 minutes of uh, district line um, underground to go to South Kensington. And I'd read a comic in the morning and swap it with a friend at school and read another one on the, on the way home. And these were war comics because the British had, they had come out victors of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So they had this war comic culture, which was quite interesting for me. And I learned lots of English, lots of useful stuff like hit the dirt, uh, take cover, uh, Achtung Engländer, Schweinhund Amerikaner, you know, things like that. Things you use every day, of course. Um, so, one of the things I was thinking about, I, I looked you up online, obviously, in preparation for this, can't go in too cold, uh, and comics weren't your first direction. I mean, you talk about how you were reading a lot when a kid, but from what it seems like you did a lot of illustration work uh, before really getting into comics. I'm curious about that kind of direction you took as a creator and how comics kind of came out of that. I'm a completely self-taught artist. When I was at school at the French Lycée, and even before in Saigon, I used to draw a lot. Um, I think this gift in the family is due to our mother. My French mother was very artistic, good at drawing, painting, ceramics, enamels, and piano. Uh, and my brother, my elder brother Dominique, was really good at art. I mentioned and I show his work in um, Saigon Calling, the sequel. The sequel deals with uh, the second part of our life in London from 1963 to 1975. 1975 is when the war ended uh, in Vietnam. Now to come back to my to myself, um, I'm completely self-taught because in my family, although I was good at drawing at school, uh, drawing was not considered um, a serious activity. Mm -hmm. And um, we were expected to be 
first in the class in serious matters such as French or history or English. Not, not much talk about science in our family because we're a very literary family. But I was good at French and Latin and, and all those subjects, and English and, and, and English literature and French literature. So after high school, I went up to Paris to study political science and administrative law and public law at a fine school in Paris called Sciences Po. And after that, I got, I got my degree when I was 20 years old, I was really young. Yeah. And I, I, I was already thinking of something more bohemian, because more bohemian is easy uh, when you come out of that school. So I went to the Sorbonne and I studied English literature and, <laughs> and civilization, which was more bohemian after Sciences Po, because I had no idea of what I was going to do in life later yeah. on. So I felt I was missing something because all this stuff I was learning at university was very interesting, but people were so straight around me. And so it took me a while, but um, when I was 25, after teaching English for one year in a French secondary school out in the boonies somewhere, in the Alps, in fact, I was really depressed and uh, hated it all. Uh, I, I don't think I was a very good English teacher because I wasn't into it, you know. I was thinking of something else. And at the end of the year, I gave my resignation and I went back to Paris and then launched into the beginning of uh, my uh, apprenticeship at the job, learning a new skill. Because I had a, I had a slight gift for, for, for drawing, but really nothing much. And I had to learn it all and start, from, and start from scratch, which was frightening. Um, but luckily, I got a few breaks quite quickly in 
For years, I didn't even consider writing a scenario. I had enough on my hands. But I moved away from comic art because I had no scenario. I tried several, but I, I would sort of, it would, they would peter out quite, 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 quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So I moved to illustration because at that time, uh, illustration for youth, for the youth, for young readers, was becoming a big thing in France. All the publishing houses would open a, uh, an imprint, yeah. would create an imprint for young readers because that was working. That We're talking like, like children like 10 and under or from young from I would say from 3 to 16 years okay. old. All sorts of picture books, educational books mixing fiction with with documentary um, the covers the covers of uh, novels for young readers I've done it all for years I worked like a madman in that area learning my job and only after 10 years or so did I start feeling a bit did I start wanting to um, write a story once in a while. And so I started writing every year a story for a picture book, and that holds on two pages, you know. They're carefully crafted, but it's not, it's not um, Tolstoy or Victor Hugo. Uh, they're short stories. And that put me on that track, oops, Okay, and so I started to realize that it's much better, if possible, to be the author of your book and to do both illustration, to do both text and then illustration. It's like being a musician who writes the score before playing the story, the song, sorry. It's, it's more um, enriching. Yeah. And in 2010, a publisher of graphic novels, an independent publisher of graphic novels, quite well known in France, he's called Jean-Luc Fromental. In fact, he was the editor-in-chief of Metal Aventure when I started off. He gave me my first break. Then for 30 years, we did our own thing, each one on his yeah. own tracks. And in 2010, I think it was at a, at a show, you know, at a vernissage, as we say in France. Yeah, or an opening. An opening. A celebration. Celebration. Uh, an exhibition of uh, original art of some comic uh, artist, I can't remember who, maybe could have been Matotti, okay. his gallery in Paris. Uh, That's right. Or another one like that. And he said to me, listen, um, uh, as you know, I... I publish graphic novels, if you have a story, tell me about it. Mm -hmm. So, this didn't fall into deaf ears, as we say in French, yeah. and I uh, called him back and we sat at a cafe in Paris and we discussed my project. Mm -hmm. I'd, always, I'd always wanted to tell the story of these two eventful years I spent in Saigon, and here was a chance to do it. But I was really nervous about writing a scenario for a 265-page graphic novel. 
you know, it's one thing writing a story with 14 or 16 double pages for young kids. It's another thing to write a graphic novel yeah. for adult readers, and you know. So that's where the the project started for uh, the book that became such a lovely little war, but w which was entitled "Une si jolie petite guerre" in France. It's the same meaning. Yeah. That's where the idea began. There's a certain flow with that petite guerre that it feels very different than little. Well, there's a there's a poeticness to it. Perhaps for for English readers, some of my generation, it might ring a bell. Yeah. Because in England, when I was an adolescent, when I was a teenager, um, there was a play, um, a fringe, progressive play called Oh, What a Lovely Little War. Oh yeah. And then it was adapted. This was a play by Joan Littlewood who was a sort of radical uh, playwright. This was a very anti-establishment yeah. play against uh, the denouncing the stupidity of the establishment during the, the First World War, sending off yeah. thousands of young men to their deaths while they were cosily drinking tea in their palaces in England. And Richard Attenborough, um, produced a film, a musical, of Joe Littlewood's play called Oh, What's a Lovely War. You can see it on YouTube entirely. And so that was a sort of hint. My title yeah. is a sort of um, reminder. Of it. It's that, I, one of the things that comes to mind with that is that idea of like, that colonialism and that separation within these conflicts and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, What were you meaning to say about the, 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 the colonial... Um, just the idea of the, like, the lovely war. There's a very colonial idea to that. Like, like as you're saying, the, the people in the things, like the mansions kind of being separated from this. And like, when I think of Vietnam, uh, it, it really is the, the conflict of like years of colonialism, of just like how that uh, really pushes on people. It's a very uh, central uh, subject. Um, this is central to the subject matter of such a lovely civil war yeah. because we arrived in Vietnam uh, exactly seven years after the independence, which came about in 1954, after eight years of war between the Vietnamese communists, the French army, but also another second army of Vietnamese nationalists um, who were fighting not for the French but alongside the French for another independence, a, a non-communist independence, which could have evolved into a pluralistic um, society. And so that why did a second world war break out in 1960? Um, a few years after the independence, it's because Vietnam had been partitioned because the Vietnamese did not agree. Yeah. Um, you had a right and a left, 
and your own world powers. And world powers stepped in, of course, because we're talking about the Cold War. Yeah. The, the Vietnam Wars, because they were two, part one and part two, or, or half-time one and half-time two, <laughs> were matches between, first, between Vietnamese, but they were like a match. Yeah. The first half-time, France and nationalist Vietnamese on one side versus communist Vietnamese yeah. supported by Chinese and Russia yeah. fighting. Second half-time, France moves out, but a new player comes in, America, and we take up arms again. I'm really fascinated by, um, there's so much that you have going into this book. I mean, your father was a translator for, for Diem. Uh, your mother is French. Uh, so there's all these different aspects that kind of really add to the fascinating complexities of what your life is and how that kind of informs um, the book. Do you have a signing? No, no, no. Okay. okay. Free as you All right. Uh, so, I'll let you... Did uh, that make sense, my question? Yes. We were uh, a mixed family. My father was Vietnamese. The first part of his education he did in, in Vietnam. Uh, he went to very... At the end of his studies, which would be high school for you, I think. The lycée for us. He went to a very fine uh, school in Hue, in central Vietnam, called La Providence. This was a Catholic school. But in that Catholic school, you could find all sorts of people, both French and Vietnamese, who weren't necessarily Catholics and who weren't necessarily wealthy, because they always kept a few um, seats, as it were, for uh, clever, but people with modest incomes yeah. in those Catholic schools. Anyway, when the troubles broke out in 45, um, half, well, I would say part of the students went to the communist side with Ho Chi Minh, another part went to the nationalist side with the, the leader who became Ngo Jin Tien later. Yeah. And as usual, a lot of the pupils just remain neutral, yeah. as always. Anyway, Dad later, with a scholarship, went to study in France at the Sorbonne first, and then at the same school I had went to later on to, to study political science. Okay. So I mentioned this because my father lived in, in colonial Vietnam, but he also benefited from a good education in that colonial system because they were already forming a sort of elite, an educated elite, not a moneyed elite. Yeah. My father came from, my, my grandfather from Vietnam was a school teacher, so he was in no, by no means rich, but he was already educated. And education in Vietnam is, is very prestigious. There's a history there of like administration, like of government administration being like a high status, may not still high income, but that's a status. Exactly. There. This comes from China. You know, Vietnam owes, I would say, maybe 80% of its culture to its Chinese uh, origins. Yeah. 
Vietnam was dominated by China for centuries yeah. before it freed itself, but it's completely within the domination, the cultural aura, or shall we say, you know, in Asia, China has always ruled. It's known a few short periods of decline, but before and now, it rules again. Yeah. Uh, even on Japan, Japan owes a lot to China. Anyway, um, my father was a product of the French colony in its latter stages, okay? And when we went back to Saigon in 61, the French presence was, could still be felt. The, the city had been built mostly by the French with the help of the Vietnamese, but the center, the town, the town center, looked very much like a, mid, a middle-sized town in France. Yeah. Uh, there were many schools that were run by the French, and the elite in the south spoke French. It was you would move from Vietnamese to French in the same sentence. They sent their offspring to French schools or schools that had been created by the French and were now run by Vietnamese. So that we were a, a hybrid culture in the South. You see what I mean? Yeah. We, we were looking to the West for models. We loved French cars and French mopeds and, and, and French fashion and French music or not only French, Western, yeah. American or we, Saigon has always been traditionally looking out to the West or to the Far East. Saigon is a port. Saigon is a recent creation in Vietnamese history. Yeah. The south of Vietnam was the far west, a bit like Western Canada. More agriculture. The, the north is also agricultural, but it's, it's ancient. Yeah. And Hanoi is a bit like Ottawa. Uh, you will find scholars and artists and, and administrators, mandarins, yeah. and also farmers. Whereas in the south, Saigon is a commercial place. It's not as high flown, yeah. but it's in a, it's also more open to all sorts of influences. You see, this is very important to understand the war that broke yeah. out. And even today, if you want to do business in Vietnam, you're not going to go to Hanoi. No. You're going to go to Saigon, obviously, because that's where things are going on. This is it's part of the, the culture of the South, and the South was really like quite like some of the Far West, because what happened was that the Vietnamese people, enterprising, aggressive, yeah. hardworking, and looking for space, moved down south and pushed back along its way all the civilizations they ran into. And one of those was the Khmer, the Cambodian civilization, which belongs to the, the Indian sphere. Yeah. And like these, Laos. That's right, like Laos and like Laos, Cambodia and Laos, and like, like Thailand and like Burma. Yeah. That's India. So the French, when they called Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, they called yeah, they're Indochina. It, it was clever because this is really, these are really three different countries, two of which belong to the 
Indian sphere, and one of which belongs to China. Yeah. See. So the colonial, the colonial past was central to the to the uh, the struggle, of the war that broke yeah. out later. It's it's interesting. This the, I mean, it's it's easy for people, especially modern days, to be like extremely dismissive of colonialism because it's a concept, a kind of overarching thing. Um, but there are like different types of impacts. So it's not. It's it's definitely more complex than. I'm glad to hear you say that because. Uh, even really recently in France, our new president, for whom I voted for, I must say twice, you know, two rounds. Yeah. Thank he did thankfully, he made it through. <laughs> yes. Luckily, well, I, I tend to think, although I understand many of the issues raised by the right and the extreme right in France, I don't dismiss them. This is my experience of a, from where I come from. You should not dismiss what they say. You should listen carefully to what they say. I think it's a great mistake to dismiss them as fascists and all that. Silly. You should hear what they say because they're not joking. You know, they're, they're, you have to take it seriously. It's, you can't just say, "Oh, oh, these are fascists and they're stupid. They're not stupid." Anyway, to come back to our subject, <laughs> our recent president uh, Emmanuel Macron before being elected, made this, for me, huge blunder. He was in Algeria, in Algiers, and he said, of course, within a certain context, he said, colonialism is a crime against humanity. I thought that was very simplistic and really not the sort of thing to say at the moment, because in, in France, in, in our uh, suburbs, uh, there are many young um, men and women who come from the former colonies of North Africa and Africa. And some of them are very radical, and some of them are spreading, for me, a very nasty ideology. They're trying to, they're trying to get the Africans and Algerians, and perhaps a few former um, colonized people from Asia, Vietnamese, I don't think they'll get very far with those. But they're trying to lead them against the whites. It's as simple as that. The whites were terrible with us during the colonial period. Let's take our revenge and league and form a sort of, you know, white against black or colored against black, uh, sorry, yeah. colored against whites. Yeah. And I find that I don't think that's the, 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 it's the wrong path. We're not going. I'm against that sort of thing. Canada is the example of, of multicultures getting along together. One of the things that's really important in Canada right now is uh, reconciliation uh, between the indigenous community because the, there was a lot of tragedies that happened here, uh, the residential schools and that kind of thing. Um, but it's like looking at what can we heal. How can we come together? And um, I'm just going to uh, Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to see if I can turn the fan off. Oh, it's freezing. You don't I seem to. You don't seem to feel air conditioning. You no. Know, you're all running around with t-shirts. You know what? We can move. Uh, we'll move the table back. No, that's okay. Because we're right under our fan. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's do that. Come on. Let me help you. All right. You know. Thank you.
the Snow White Cell. It's written by a guy who was in the CIA, and it's about the interrogation of a Vietcong agent, a big, a big guy. I mentioned him in the second book. He organized lots of bombings, in, in, uh, bombs exploding, you know, that were carrying yeah. terrorism in Saigon during the, uh, the American period. And there's a fine article of him describing how they would interrogate these prisoners because he was captured by the Vietnamese and Americans. And they basically, they would lock these guys in snow white cells and put the air, condition, air conditioning on high. And Vietnamese people, especially real Vietnamese people living there, hate being cold. Yeah. They really think they're going to die. I can feel now like I'm sitting where you were sitting and the fans coming right just to move this. I'm fine. You don't, I'm fine. You're yeah. used to this. I'm Canadian. A Canadian. <laughs> okay. So uh, when you, you can write it down, the man in the snow white, the man in the snow white cell. It's a very good article. Yeah. It could make a good comic strip story actually. The guy is called uh, the agent, the former CIA guy is called. He's got a Polish name, I think. Prevnov or, or German or Prussian Prevnov, Prebenov, you know, with a W at the end. P R E B E N O W. Okay. Anyway, that was an aside. Um, I have. Uh, there's been a, a couple other books recently about the Vietnam War or about recovery from the Vietnam War, uh, especially here in North America. Uh, recent one, T. Bui's book. Yeah. Um, the best we can do. Yeah. We could do. Yeah. And uh, a couple of years ago, Jimmy uh, Tran's uh, Vietnam America. And I was talking to, on my drive in today to the festival, uh, I was talking to friends about that. One of the things I was thinking about is how we're seeing these books now because um, enough time has passed where um, you're separated from that trauma. Um, you're pretty young when a lot of that stuff happened were with your parents um, it's not the, you know they wouldn't be able to tell that story um, because it was hard like it's quite shocking to know that your dad was Dien's translator like that's that's pretty close involved in what was interpreter. happening yeah, interpreter yeah he would interpret live you know oh Jesus <laughs> I have dozens of pictures uh, some are published on the internet on a fantastic website called Man High, Man N A N H High H I H A I Vietnamese then Man High yeah. Gallery on Flickr. So if you enter Marcino Tron, you will see about seventy pictures, which belong to history now, yeah. where you see Dad sitting on a straight chair at the palace, which which used to be the palace of the governor general of Indochina in French days, a very grand place. And on his left is uh, President Tien, a sort of quite proud man, was sitting in, a, in an armchair. And here we have a visitor who can be American, but he can be Australian, Australian prime minister, or the Australian air attaché, or, or he can be uh, British on visit, or reporter or an American reporter or a New Zealander, they're all visiting, yeah. going through Saigon and some managed to get an interview with the president and dad is translating 
from Vietnamese into English and English into Vietnamese. Because the president spoke English and understood English perfectly, but he preferred to have an interpreter. That's interesting. So Dad would get to hear all this stuff and, and also translate President Yen's terribly long answers. <laughs> but he knew, he said, I said, how do you manage? He said, well, you know, I knew what the president would say before he answered because political people always, they're like artists, they always have the same message. Yeah. And so it was difficult for me to translate him. Yeah, Those answers this really long answer and then your dad kind of has like a shorter version. <laughs> this is basically the idea of what he said. True. Yes, obviously that's what he did. Yeah. The, the, uh, the president had a, this bad habit of being too long in his answers. And a lot so, of hubris. Hubris. I think he was trying to um, I think he was trying to be um, precise and go into detail but Probably, you know, we, you know he, he, it was difficult for a man like our president, Yem, to understand really the functioning of a Western democracy. We were learning at the job. Um, our communists' adversaries did not have that problem. Yeah. Their, their rule was supposed to be collective and they, they didn't have to answer any questions. And Ho Chi was quite educated. He was fairly educated. He came from the scholarly class. His mm -hmm. father was a small Mandarin in a very poor area of, of uh, central Vietnam, which produces many intellectuals. Um, and he was self-taught mm -hmm. because he he went off pretty young on a, a tour around the world. He he may have stopped in Vancouver. You know, he worked yeah. on a ship doing working in, in the kitchens, things like that. You know. So he did. A, he went to New York, he did a tour of uh, the world, and then he worked uh, at London, in London at the Waldorf in the kitchen with a French chef called Escoffier, famous guy in those days. And then you will find him in Paris in just after the First World War in the socialist circles there. He managed to make his way like serving into Versailles or something like serving so, dishes there. He, 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 he took part in the uh, Versailles Agreements, uh, which put an end to the, uh, the Versailles Treaty, which put an end to the First World War. And he tried to come out as a representative of the colonized people of Indochina. Yeah. That was one of his first public appearances. And later on, in 1922, he took part in the creation of um, the French Communist Party, which was called La Section uh, yeah. oh Internationale Communiste. Anyway, this was the foundation of the French Communist Party. Yeah. And then he disappeared to Soviet Union, where he was trained yeah. as, a, as, a, as, a, as an agent. Mm -hmm. Ho Chi Minh was a, a carefully trained agent of the Comintern, the uh, uh, sort of Vietnamese James Bond trained in Moscow. <laughs> really? Yeah. This is obvious to, uh, to, to, to me. There are very dark areas in his life where you don't really know what he was up to. Yeah, there's undocumented chunks where 
basically he comes back from World War II to fight against the Japanese at that point. That's right, and he's been away for 20 years. Yeah. And we don't all we don't know all about his life. He changed names dozens of times, and that will really set people off your track with a change name. It's it's very disturbing. It's so fascinating because I mean he really is one of the most important people of the 20th century as far as like has such an impact, but there's so much about him that's hidden. Like so many of these other folks are extremely well documented. You can find anything else you want about Stalin or Hitler or Lenin. True. Um, because when he went uh, on the other side behind, well, when he went to Russia, uh, the word Iron Curtain didn't exist because Churchill coined that word in 1946, I think, yeah. in America. Uh, but uh, it existed even if it didn't wasn't called that way. And when he disappeared in, into Russia, you disappeared. Yeah. This happened during the war all the time. Um, we were getting very little information, we people in the West, in the, what was called the free world, very little seeped out of uh, Soviet Union and China and North Vietnam and North Korea, and we had become used to this. We didn't expect information, so that something very unfair happened during the whole course of the Vietnam War. While we in the South had hundreds of, of foreign reporters flowing in and out of Vietnam, working pretty freely, hopping on choppers to see the war, coming back, sending their dispatches with hardly any censorship, because we belong to the free world, so we have to abide with the rules of the free world, and our, our mentors, the Americans, the free freedom of the press was, was written on, the, uh, on their constitution, yeah. and because they were paying for this war, they told us, listen, we have to tell our folks back home what their boys are doing in Vietnam, yeah. so there's no way you can stop our reporters from reporting. And the president would say, yes, but uh, what about our adversaries, our opponents? They don't have that trouble. If you, if you take pictures of the war, and it's very easy to take nasty pictures of wars. They're nasty little occupations, wars. Um, and they will be double-edged swords. They, they, will, they can easily be turned against us. Why is it fair? Is it, it's unfair because meanwhile up north and in the guerrilla um, zones, the zones dominated by, controlled by the guerrillas of the National Liberation Front, we call the Viet Cong, which is like slightly pejorative. There's the Viet Minh before that, right? Viet Minh is the, the, the father of the Viet Cong. It's yeah. the same thing, but in the first half time, they were called Viet Minh. Yeah. Second half time, same thing, <laughs> they were called Viet Cong. New label. Viet Minh is not pejorative. It comes from a long sentence, which means League for Independence. And then, but Viet Cong, it's like calling someone a Vietnamese commie. It's yeah. pejorative, okay? Yeah. Um, the Viet Minh and, and, and the Viet Cong and the regular uh, North Vietnamese army and, and the North Vietnamese state did not have journalists flowing in. They selected very carefully trickle of, of uh, progressive and often radical journalists and photojournalists 
and only those were allowed to come to Vietnam because they were enamored with the cause and their pictures and their articles would serve uh, the cause. They didn't let people who were anti-communist in North Vietnam. So that was unfair. We had lots of radicals coming into Vietnam. Some were nice guys who wanted to put an end to the war. So let's show the horrors and get people horrified yeah. and disgusted. Fair enough, but that's... If you do that, you should show the horrors on the other side too. Now these were the nice radicals, but you also had what I call more unpleasant radicals who would just show the horrors on our side and there were many, yeah. um, and used that as a sort of propaganda against the anti-imperialists, yeah. the, the, the nasty uh, henchmen of American imperialism, people like Philip Jones Griffiths, uh, a Welsh guy uh, coming from, um, you know, Welsh, very left-wing miners background. Yeah. He went to Vietnam with an issue. He believed in socialism. So do I in many other domains, but not for that. Not that socialism. No. Uh, and he, his pictures were terrible. Were, they were brilliant pictures, but showing terrible stuff. You can find them in a book that's been republished called Vietnam Incorporated, which says it all. Yeah. He denounces, he points his finger at the we, we, we call it the complex military, oh, the military industrial complex. That's it. Yeah. Which you touch on at the end of the book. Okay, so of course, yes, there was a military industrial complex, undeniably. But what those guys would never show was that we were opposing a totalitarian state which had no freedom of the press, no hippies, no demonstrations, no pacifists except when the state wanted to pose as a pacifist. Yeah. And no smoking dope, and no listening to decadent rock music from the West. A really strict totalitarian society and all controlling. That's what we were facing. There's something neat in, uh, in T's book uh, where she captures that change, where her family, because they're still there in the 70s where Saigon changes, Oh, yes. That's how they have to hide that stuff. Why do the, the, the people who, who full of the, the well-intentioned, kind-hearted people who spoke protest of the yeah. war, I really understand them. Yeah. The, 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 the young Americans had no reason to get killed or maimed or, maimed or traumatized in, in, in Vietnam. This, this wasn't their war. America should never have sent the, uh, the conscripts. Yeah. Advisors were enough. And we only wanted advisors. We, not, we didn't want uh, American boys on our soil because we knew that immediately we became, we, we, we became uh, immediately our opponents would say, oh, look at them. They're not even able to fight their own war. They have to have the whites come in and help them, the big boys from America. We knew that we had lost face with that. But what happened was that our President Diem described us as henchmen of the Americans. He was too stubborn, so they got rid of him in a coup. You know? And then after that, they, say, they said, I'm caricaturing, but 
things are easier to understand. He said, listen, we'll handle this out of the way, you, you, you uh, incompetent uh, fools. Let's handle this and we'll have it done by for Christmas. We saw the result. They, they did all they could and they lost a lot of people. You know, I, I, I'm not forgetting this, uh, but they didn't solve the problem. There was something, I took a course at the university specifically on Vietnam from um, colonial, through colonial to the, after the war and I remember my teacher saying and I, I'm totally not going to get it right it's like after the assassination and the coup at uh, and Kennedy was like this is not going to end well like of course he did not have very long after that himself 15 days yeah um, and that was really like just a mark just like how from there what could go wrong did go wrong Putting this book together, um, your father passed away... 2012. Uh, was that while you were working on it? I was working on it. In fact, when uh, father died in June 2012, I had only uh, uh, completed the first 150 pages in pencil art. Okay. Because I write the scenario and then I do each page in, in very detailed pencil art. You can, and with the text, you can read the story. Yeah. You could publish it, well, I mean, you could, it could be read like that, because this enables my publisher to give me his impressions. Yeah. And also, it, it uh, means that I've done, for me, the pencil art is 80% of the job. Yeah. The final art is just cosmetic, you see? But once I have the pencil art done and it seems to work, I feel much more um, reassured that I'm going to, be able to achieve, finish this book, or it'll be a good book. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that um, my dad was able to read the hundred, the first hundred and fifty pages. There are two hundred and sixty, and I was trembling. Yeah. And unfortunately, after that, he died. But I was trembling because I thought, Ooh. he was a very educated man, very clever guy, and, and very wise and and very um, demanding. You know, you didn't settle for something average. You have an expectation when you work both in the bureaucratic administration and also with Reuters, like very specific standards that you don't fail. There you are, exactly. You're, you're quite right. So I was trembling that he would uh, criticize me. And also, I'm, I talk a lot about very intimate stuff. I'm talking about my parents and their, their, their life as a couple, as a married couple. There are arguments sometimes. All married couples have arguments. And there were many in our family because my mother, who was a fine person, was, um, had a disposition. She, she was a bipolar. Mm -hmm. And uh, Vietnam in 1961, 62, 63, we were losing about 100 people every month to the war by, uh, because of our, the Revolutionary War, the subversive war carried out by our opponents, and also the retaliation, yeah. the counter-insurrection was not always pleasant. The militarization of Saigon itself. Exactly, and the militarization of the people in the countryside by our opponents. We were dilettantes compared to them. Yeah. Um, and 
so the situation was critical and mom was, was, was uh, overwhelmed by all this. Like, I can't blame her now, really. Yeah. She, she was bringing up four children in a country, in a situation that no parents can, can wish for his children, yeah. even though we were in a relatively safe part of, the, of, of Saigon and we were part of the privileged class, uh, modestly privileged, but privileged all the same. Revolutionary war is designed to instill fear in everybody. Yeah. No one is safe from revolutionary war. Well, and, idea. and when you're talking about like a class revolution like that, those are the first to go. Yeah. The privileged class. Of I mean, course. You know, of course. that's quite true. Especially with your father being French. There's also, <laughs> there's also as you say, there's also there's a class war, but there's also a race war. Yeah. Which is often, often uh, sort of uh, played down. The, our opponents were quite clever at, at dissimulating this with uh, Westerners. Remember that the leaders in, in um, North Vietnam were clever dicks who had been to French schools. Yeah. They knew that to convince French progressives and, and Western progressives, you, you don't shout, you don't bark. Yeah. Don't gesticulate. You talk quietly and you, you and, and reasonably, and you you play the Eastern Oriental wise man, yeah. weak and gentle and soft-spoken, with a wispy beard, and they're gonna love that. They're yeah. gonna think you're a Yoda or something, <laughs> and it worked. Yeah. And that's very particular to Vietnam. North Korea doesn't do that. China in those days were pretty vociferous when they when they were, but they went at war. Yeah. Anyway, that was a, 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 that's particular to Vietnam. Yeah. We had very clever guys on the other side who knew exactly how to act in front of Western progressives. They were very. There's a exerted a, a strong appeal, you know. If there's anything socialists do really well, it's propaganda. Now you're talking, <laughs> because, because um, I'm going to say a rude word, and I know it's politically incorrect to criticize communism in the West. I, I experience this all the time. In France, if you start criticizing communism, they will, many will feel offended especially in the cultural in the, uh, sphere in the media, yeah. because in France, communism is the heroic struggle against the Nazis and the collaborators during the four years or five years of occupation. Yeah. Communism has never been really in power in France, but it dominates the, the, its ideals, which are very appealing. And Well, liberty, yeah. equality, justice, social justice. I'm all for that. Now, it depends how you go about it. If you use guns to do that, uh, this is where I leave the stage and uh, I prefer votes and quiet things like that, yeah. boring stuff like that, but less bloody, you see. In France, if you criticize communism, they will quite quickly ask you, are you a reactionary? Um, Five minutes later, you must be a fascist because it's a, it's a, it's a sacred thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's politically incorrect because there's this notion 
that communism in France is the same as communism in Asia. Yeah. That's rubbish. Yeah. It's the same word for two different things. They should rename it in, in, in uh, I call it national communism in Vietnam as there was national socialism. And we're closer to the truth. Which is very different from like the class politics of France. Yes, because look at what Mao says. The communism we had in Vietnam was very much influenced by the Soviet, by Soviet Russia. But from 1949 onwards, it became it became dominated by Maoist communism because Mao won in October 1949, and everything changed when Mao 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 Zedong became number one in Asia. Yeah. You must really understand this. People often compare the Vietnam War to what happens in South America. You can't compare. In South America we have the United States of America wielding a big stick. That's their backyard. Yeah. In Southeast Asia, China wields the big stick. Yeah. Although it was shortly colonized, forget about it. Yeah. Since 1949 they have again reached their status under a different label. They are the big stick in Asia. You see what I mean? Um, so, in, it's difficult to criticize communism. You, you, you get a bad name and it, immediately people think you're, you're far right, you're a nasty guy yeah. who's against liberal societies. It's a joke. It's, it's all the, the opposite. We had a liberal society in South Vietnam, although the leader was pretty authoritarian by our standards today. Yeah. We were at war. The minute you're at war, certain freedoms are restricted. Kipling, in 1914 in England, Rudyard Kipling said, the first casualty of war is, what did he say? Something like freedom of expression, I think. Yeah. Because you need to control, you know, so, we had hundreds, uh, about a hundred different newspapers in Saigon throughout the war, relatively free. Of course, there was a bit of censorship. While in North Vietnam, you could read um, the People's Daily and the People's Army's Daily. <laughs> that was all there was to read. Everything was controlled. And this was not said enough. We could listen to pop music. We could listen, we could have long hair, although it was sort of considered a bit Rider in Saigon in 1972. Oh, wow. You could. There are traces of that. Yeah. You could. You could see French films. You could see English films. We were looking towards the West as a model, and we believed in freedom of expression. You could buy the complete works of Karl Marx in Saigon. There are photos of bookstores where you can buy really progressive stuff. I mean, this was not Nazi Germany by any means. And it's, we were told we were fascist, you know. It's hard to understand the situation when you're not there. And, and especially Vietnam, really for a lot of people, uh, kind of plays this like, um, it's a symbol. 
it, exactly. and, and you kind of take away from, from what that is for folks and um, you're quite right in the in the 60s and 70s I was in London so I saw the rise of the, the, the pop counterculture yeah. last February I was in London and there was a fantastic exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum great museum yeah. called You Say You Want a Revolution that a famous Beatles yeah. song I rushed to it. Fantastic exhibition. All my youth was there. It's a beautiful gallery. You can you can buy the uh, it's a beautiful gallery and, and you can buy the the catalogue of that. It's a big fat catalogue. It, it's a sort of it covers the fantastic production in uh, the lore of music, fashion, cinema, architecture, design, and literature, which which. From the counterculture and pop culture yeah. of the 60s and 70s, the the dates are 63, 1972. You know, so, so very close to your next book. <laughs> and, and one and one uh, one whole room of the large hall of the exhibition is devoted to the Vietnam War, the Black Panthers, the gay rights issues, and the feminists. The feminists. They're the struggles of the yeah. 60s. And the, and the civil rights movement in, in America and anti-apartheid to South Africa. Now, as you said, the Vietnam War was a sort of banner. It was something you threw at your parents' face, saying, look how, look what the, the West is doing against these poor Vietnamese peasants who are heroically fighting against the greatest superpower in the world, yeah. and which is raining napalm and Agent Orange on them. How awful, you know. And Vietnam became became a stone, you know. As we say in France, where you, we used to dig up the stones in the streets in May '68 to hurl at the police. Mm -hmm. It became one of those weapons you used against your the establishment, the, the, the your parents, your teachers, your officers. You, you see, and in that sense, it was used in a way that, that caused us much uh, trouble. We, the, the, the puppets, we, the henchmen of uh, imperialism. Um, through doing this book, um, do you have kind of a change in how you understand the war, or do you kind of have something in mind leading into it? In the first book, I tried to be very objective, as objective as you can be, because, uh, well, as in many other Vietnamese families, two or three of my uncles and aunts joined the National Liberation Front, and much before that, in 1945, they joined the Vietnamese. In Montreal, in the next week, I'm going to visit the daughter of one of my uh, uncles, uh, one of my father's very close cousins, who in 1945 joined the Vietnam. He has a page devoted to him okay. in the book. You would need a full chapter to tell his complete yeah. story. Well, one of his daughters lives in Montreal, and I'm going to visit her. So I meant to say that I tried to be as objective as possible, because when I started going back to Vietnam in 1991, I met all these uncles and aunts who had joined the revolution 
and they had a place in society. They were heroes. They had medals. My um, one of my uncles is a hero of the second great patriotic resistance, uh, Russian style. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and another, and his sister-in-law is a, a heroic mother of the second patriotic resistance. Anyway. I, I was able to hear their side of the story, and yeah. they're often very convincing. They lost a lot of people. Yeah. They call it martyrs. Yeah. They call them martyrs. Martyrs, slightly religious, you know. Yeah, that goes back to the propaganda. And all these causes, all the world, look at that. Today, all these causes use the word martyr, which is religious. Yeah. The Catholics have a long story of martyrdom in Vietnam. In Vietnam, you get the, the only people who are fanatics are the communists and the Catholics. Other Vietnamese or Buddhists, they're, they're a bit less fanatic. They can be, but a bit less. Yeah. Catholicism and communism are really structured, you know, ideologies. And they, well, I wouldn't compare them, but they have certain traits in common, you know. I'm not saying they're the same, never. No, they're kind of like a flip side. They have sort of discipline, both of them, you yeah. see. They have a backbone, for better or for worse, you know. They really have a back, they're activists. They're not laid back. No. They're not pacifists. No. So, uh, I tr in the first one, I tried to be objective to supply the reader. Uh, I'm not telling him who are the baddies and who are the goodies. I'm giving him all, I'm giving, I'm supplying him with the facts he needs to know to follow the story. Yeah. In the second book, I had the same number of pages to tell about 12 years of war from 1963 to 1965. So I wasn't being going to be able to tell it all. And there were several wars in Vietnam. There was a conventional war, and there was a special forces war. There was a revolutionary war, and there was a bombs and, 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 and gunships and, and, and Nature on the war, you know, there, there was a psychological war, and there were many wars. Couldn't tell them all, and I couldn't take defend all sides. So I decided to defend the non-communist side, the the puppets of Saigon's side, which I come from, and uh, assuming, uh, knowing that in France at least. The cause of the Vietnamese communists has been defended and is being defended as has been almost has almost become mainstream. Yeah. And when you defend the other side, the, the, the henchmen of American imperialism and uh, the puppets, you're swimming upstream. Yeah. And I decided to do that because it, hearing people praise Ho Chi Minh in France is commonplace, whereas they all consider. ZM was a criminal. Well, here in, in the 60s in France, lots of people were Maoists. Yeah. And they would tell you, oh, Nixon, what a fiend, what a, what a, what a, what a crook. But they didn't know about the Cultural Revolution. Who killed the most people? Is it Nixon or is it, um, what's his name, Mao? Yeah. Mao killed 40 million, we think, we don't know for sure of his own subjects. We'll never know because that sort of totalitarian state is not, is not free with its, that sort of information. Same so with Russia. It's the irony of the things. Yeah. 
three weeks ago uh, a screen print of Multitoon by Andy Warhol, the art pop artist, yeah. was sold in, in Hong Kong for over a million dollars, bought by some rich China, Chinese guy. Now, come to think of it, you know, you can put Multitoon in your living room. Your friends are going to find you really cool and progressive, and no, they won't. It won't cut their appetite. If you put a poster of Nixon, people are going to start worrying about you. If you put a, a picture of um, Hitler, people should worry about <laughs> you. Know? But there's this paradox that some yeah. dictators are more equal than others. And, and that might be particular to different experiences, because I think in Vancouver, especially, you would not do that. You would not put up a mouth poster. Really? Yeah. Uh, we have a, quite a large Chinese community, uh, a lot of folks, especially after 1997 in Hong Kong. So it's very different. Uh, a lot of folks from Canton. Um, so it's just all those different dynamics. And even now we have folks, um, the Vancouver realty market, which you've probably heard about, which is heavily affected by folks uh, funneling their money out from China and trying and getting out of the system. Very complex here. Uh, in Paris recently, uh, near the uh, stock exchange La Bourse, I, I had lunch or dinner in a Chinese restaurant run by Chinese people, decorated exclusively with propaganda posters of our Nazi Tunier, exclusively. That's funny. Now, try that with posters of Nazi Germany, people yeah. would go nuts. Oh, yeah. Uh, I went to a um, boulangerie, uh, a bakery, yeah. you know, when you buy your bread and cakes in eastern Paris, where I live in the eastern part of Paris, in the 11th, where, where the, the attacks took place in 2015. Okay. I live right next to Bataclan. Uh, oh, wow. Fresh, I live 500 meters from there. And on the other side, there's Wichau, and went, another set of really bad shootings took place. Anyway, uh, in um, this year, I went to the eastern suburb of uh, Paris called Montreuil, which is full of arty uh, people now because it's one of the last places where you can afford to buy. Uh, it was a stronghold of the French Communist Party for years, and which means that culturally they are more progressive. Yeah. Because there the French Communists did a good job. They were very progressive and they're at the you know, they're cutting edge of anti-racism, anti, uh, anti uh, against anti-Semitism. Yeah. I'm all for that. Yeah. I have an interest in that. I'm, I'm a half Vietnamese, half French guy, so I do not particularly uh, feel that it should be a good thing if people were to become very racist in France. Anyway, I walked into this bakery. It was called The Conquest of Bread, which is a title of some a writing by some anarchist. And the door handle was an A, like the yeah. anarchist, all right? So, this was lunchtime, looking for a sandwich, you know, sort of cheese and cucumber. Well, cheese and cucumber in that place is called Karl Marx. The uh, egg and tomato is bakunin. Uh, the uh, ham and eggs is uh, Andrew Davis. And there's also... Um, so it's a commodification of revolution. And on the bridge, you know, there is a, a poster 
obviously uh, done from a photo showing uh, a curd resistance of female women, yeah. young women, nestling a uh, Kalashnikov on her knees. Uh, she's a resistance fighter against her Daesh uh, uh, yeah. Al Qaeda. And that's cool, okay? And I'm saying, it's incredible. If, if I were to open a, a sandwich bar shop in Paris and call it um, using French nationalists or calling it uh, I know, uh, a burger cheese and tomato sandwich or a burger is an English conservative of the what, 18th century or something, 17th century, call it uh, I don't know, um, some monarchist or, or some right wing guy in France or Philippe Pétain the dictator we had during the French occupation. The, that would create an uproar. The, clo the place would be closed. The Herbert Spencer uh, sandwiches. I don't know who Herbert Spencer is, but... 19th century. Um, conservative? Yeah, conservative theorist. Okay. Or a sociologist of like... Exactly. Kind of like the opposite of Marx at that time. Right, well, you know, <laughs> that is not considered cool at all. So this is, I'm talking about this because it's, this is still going on all the time in France. And I wouldn't mind, really, although I think it's a bit silly, because these guys advocate violence, you know. The, the, yeah. And um, this was the backdrop of the two Indochina wars. Yeah. We fought those wars, well, we, the puppets, fought those wars at the time when communism, oops, sorry, was at the height of its popularity. First, there was Stalin in France in 1945, 25% of the electorate votes for Stalin. And in 1950, you can look it up on YouTube, one of France's best poets, Paul Paul-Éluard, who wrote this fine poem called Liberté, Liberté Chérie. I love that poem. He also wrote the narration and did the narration of a film for the French Communist Party called The Man We Love the Most. And guess who that is? <laughs> He's talking about Joseph Stalin, right? In yeah. You can see the film, it's in the archives of the French Communist Party. They have it all on yeah. the internet. In 1959, when the popularity of Soviet Russia is beginning to wane a bit because they've just invaded Hungary, and, that, and, and also Khrushchev has published his report on the, on the crimes of Stalin. Yeah. Well, 1959, three years later, Castro takes yeah. over in Cuba, and he's got this handsome friend called Fidel Castro, who's got the face of a Latin lover, he's got long hair and a beret, and he looks so cool, and he smokes cigars and probably quite a few joints. <laughs> and so that's irresistible. You know, here we have beaches and coconut trees, and, and it's sunny, and it's and it's and they're handsome, and they're you know, and the revolution is exciting and fun in Cuba. And then after that, we have Maoism, which becomes a new thing. And Herbert Marcuse, the god of French leftists in May '68, who who was a German Jew and who flew. Uh, Germany in 1933 and settled down in, in New York and then in San Diego where he had a cozy university job and became the Pope of the left wing. There's a, I encourage you to listen to one of his speeches which you can easily find on YouTube. It's the full speech
It's called the Radical Revolution because he spoke with a very strong German accent, like the German officers in, in war films. Yeah. And what he says, he's telling us, folks, he's talking to young students at Barclay, a hotbed of anti-war uh, protest in those days. This is 72, three years before the end of the Vietnam War. He's telling us, do not despair while I'm making it short. Marxism, the Marxist revolution is still possible. A red star is rising in the east. And guess who he's talking about? Mao Zedong. Yeah. At that time, the revolution, the cultural revolution, revolution is popular. Here at last, we have a revolutionary who does not sit in his armchair once he has attained power, but this is the permanent revolution. Yeah. So fantastic, you know. Well, well Cuba still refers to itself as the, in the revolution. Like the revolution is still happening in Cuba. That's that's part of the language there. And so, exactly, uh, we had French guys going to uh, Cuba and and like Michel Regis de Regis Debré, a French intellectual now, uh, who joined uh, who was close to Castro in Argentina. Uh, all this was very romantic. You know, the revolution was extremely romantic in, in South America, seen from France. So that is the backdrop of the Vietnam War. And, and people still today, because Donald Trump is in power, compared to the, the fiend Nixon, and in many ways he was a fiend. However, Nixon stepped down before he was impeached and left power. You can be sure that the, the Chinese and the North Vietnamese leaders were watching this closely. And when they saw Nixon step down from power at the head of the most powerful country in the world, they thought, they thought, the guy's nuts. We would never do anything like that. Mao died in his bed at the head of the state. Ho Chi Minh died in his bed. They never resigned. And they have no intention of uh, turning over power. In Vietnam, the one-party system still exists. And they do exactly like the Chinese. They have turned to red capitalism, a 360-degree turn. They did the red capitalism before China, didn't they? No, they did Ten years later, they started in 86. Um, I feel like I'm going to bring us to an end, a close of this. We've had a pretty great conversation. I hope you don't have to transcribe all this. It's no, it's for the radio. Oh, okay. in this case. So, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I feel like we will probably be talking again in the future. Because so. uh, we really we really didn't get into your next book, really just talking about what uh, such a level of war really sets the stage. The next book, I, I, without, uh, well, a lot of the topics we have approached. Yeah. This backdrop of, uh, of what great speaks into, like, yeah. Because in the second book, so the book called Saigon, I tell about my family story in London. Yeah. And in London, we had protests against the war. We had huge demonstrations in 69 at Trafalgar Square yeah. uh, with John Bates and, and all the, well, uh, Tariq Ali and Vanessa Redgrave and they, all the progressives and quite radical who were all for Uncle Hope. Yeah. So we've approached the subject, <laughs> but I'd be glad to talk about yeah. it again. Um, thank you so much again uh, for folks listening. I've been talking to Marcelino Tron. Uh, did I get it? Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, and like I said, his latest book is such a lovely little war, as well as uh, coming out this fall, Saigon Calling 
uh, both from Vancouver based Arsenal Pulp Press. Okay, yeah. thanks, Bob. You a little Bob, some Robin. Robin, sorry. Just, sorry. Yeah. Not short for anything.